Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Satan is real. Demons are real. Hell is real. And one of the greatest lies that Satan ever told was to convince the world that he doesn't exist. And a lot of people, they don't believe in Satan, they don't believe in demons, they don't believe in hell. But the truth is, it doesn't really matter what you believe. The only thing that matters is what is true. And Satan doesn't care if you believe in him as long as you don't believe in God. Demons don't care that you believe in hell as long as you go there. Satan is real, demons are real, hell is real. And they are really at work in our world. And the truth is, is that you and me and everyone who has been born has been born into captivity. We've been born as hostages. We are slaves caught in enemy fire, that we are born behind enemy lines in a great war that has been raged on from the very beginning. In eternity past, there is a war between God and Satan, between good and evil, between light and darkness, that God is good, Satan is evil, God is light, Satan is darkness, that God brings life, Satan brings death, that God loves you and Satan hates you and he will do anything in his power to take you down and to take you out. And we're going to see this play out in the life of one man today. He is the man who's possessed by 6,000 demons. His name is Legion for they are many. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter five. We're going to start in verse one. And the sermon title today is this, Jesus casts out the demons. And I know what some of you are thinking, really, seriously, another demon sermon, right? Didn't we just have one of these? Yes. And if you're new here, you need to understand that we don't love talking about demons. We're not the demon church, right? I didn't wake up this morning and think, you know, it'd be a great way to get these people, right? Great way for them to go to next steps and get in the community group. A great way to see our church grow is I'm going to preach on legions. That's definitely going to get them. I I didn't do that, right? So we're not the demon church. We don't love talking about demons. We love talking about Jesus. We love preaching through the Bible. And so one of our favorite ways to preach here at Redemption Church is we study entire books. So we pick a book, we live in the book, we preach the book, we meet in homes all across the city called community groups where we study one single book. And right now we find ourselves in the gospel of Mark. We're calling it the simple gospel because Mark tells us exactly who Jesus is, what Jesus says, what Jesus does, and what it means for you and me to follow after him. And the truth is, if you're going to follow Jesus, you will encounter Satan and demons and spiritual warfare. It is inevitable. It is going to happen. We've already seen it five times in Mark's gospel. And if my memory serves me correct, there's 24 instances and power encounters that Jesus exercises his authority over Satan and demons and darkness, and he casts out demons. And so we're going to see this play out again today as Jesus casts out 6,000 demons out of a man named Legion. And we're going to see what happens when this man meets Jesus and how his life has changed forever. 
Okay, and so normally, whenever we preach, I have big ideas and points, kind of one, two, three, nice little outline for you guys. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. What I want to do is I want to just read through the story, just verse by verse. We're going to walk through it slowly, and we're going to unpack anything that we see. We're going to make some observations. And the reason that I, I, I do this is twofold. One is because the subject of spiritual warfare is highly controversial, and a lot of you have questions about it, and I want to be able to let the Bible speak for itself. And then the second thing is, is I want this man's story to speak for itself, because I think that this man's story is one of the most powerful, beautiful stories of life change that we witness through all of the gospel of Mark. And so here we are in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Jesus cast out the demons. Okay, you guys ready? Okay, it doesn't matter. We're going to do it anyway. Mark 5, 1. Here's what it says. And they came to the other side of the sea, that's Jesus and his disciples, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, if you remember back to last week, Jesus just finished out a full day of ministry. Chapter 4 takes place all in one single day. He wakes up in the morning. He goes to the Sea of Galilee. He preaches. A crowd of 5,000 people show up, and he's telling parables, and he's telling stories, and he's preaching sermons, and he's helping and healing and loving as many people as he can, but people are exhausting. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and says, okay, boys, let's get in the boat. Let's pull up the anchor. Let's head across to the other side. It's the middle of the night. They're in the middle of the sea. And all of a sudden they find themselves in the middle of a storm. And the disciples, they're fearful. They're afraid. They're panicked. They are freaking out. They think that they are about to die. And so they go and tell Jesus, you know, master, do you not care that we are perishing? And so Jesus gets up and he stands up and he rebukes the storm and he says, peace be still. And then instantly the winds were silent. The sea was silent. The storm was silent. Last week we saw Jesus's power over creation and over destruction. And this week, we're going to see Jesus' power over the demons. Last week, he had the power to be able to calm the storm. This week, we see that Jesus has the power and the ability to cast out the demons. And so he goes to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, the Gerasenes, that is a a pagan place. They are Gentiles. They are far from God. They're not Jewish people, so they don't have a church. They don't have a synagogue. They don't have praying grandparents who love them and want to bring them to a good church. They didn't read their kids' Bible stories. There's no people of faith over there. They're Gentiles. They are far from God. And Jesus, he's leaving Galilee in this area of Capernaum, and he's heading into the Gerasenes. This is a, a pagan land. And so Jesus, he's entering in as a missionary. You need to understand that Jesus is a missionary, that Jesus leaves heaven and he enters into this world on a rescue mission, that he has come to seek and to save the lost, that he has come to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring light into the darkness. He has come to set free the captives. He has come to liberate those who are in bondage, that Jesus enters into this world as a missionary in the same way that he leaves heaven and comes to earth. Now he's leaving Galilee or, or, or Capernaum and he's entering into the country of the Gerasenes. So there he is. Jesus is tired. He's stressed. He's exhausted. He's at the end of himself. And after a long day of ministry and a long night of calming storms and calming down disciples, what do you think would be waiting for Jesus on the other side? Well, Mark tells us, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. 
right? That's Mark's word for demon. So Jesus, he's exhausted, he's tired, he's stressed. He just wants to get away from the crowds. He just wants to get away from everything else. He just wants to take a moment, take a minute, take a time, maybe even get a nice little nap. Jesus, after a couple of hours of sleep, he finally shows up to the shore, and guess what's waiting for Jesus on the other side? Is it the Chamber of Commerce? Is it the city council, right? Is it a party? Is there a parade? Are people waiting there and waving flags? Jesus, we love you. We're so excited that you're here. Is there a waiter there with a, you know, a 12 pack, one for each of his disciples because apparently Jesus doesn't partake. Is it a fruit fruit drink with an umbrella? Is there a massage? Is there a spa day? Does he get a facial and nice little cucumber mask for his eyelids? What's waiting for Jesus as he gets to the other side? A man with an unclean spirit. A man who is possessed by a demon. Now, this man, he was legendary. Everybody knows, you don't go down to the tombs. You don't go down to the graveyard because that's where this man lives. He is famous. He is infamous. Everybody knows him. The kids are talking about him. The kids know, oh, you don't go down there because that's where the demonized man lives. That's where the crazy man lives. That's where the madman lives. And if you go down there, then you're going to get beat up. You're going to get attacked. That he might even try to kill you because that's where that crazy deranged, insane, mad, demon-possessed man lives. What would you do if you were the disciple on this day? How would you react? How would you respond that you're doing life with Jesus? You're following Jesus, right? You're seeing him preach and teach and heal. You're doing ministry together. You're like, this is amazing. You get out of a boat, and then all of a sudden, there's a man with an unclean spirit. Then you run right into the demonized guy. How would you react? How would you respond if you were one of the disciples? And the truth is, is that if you follow Jesus long enough, you're going to have the same experience. That if you follow Jesus long enough, you will encounter Satan, demons, darkness, and even demonized people. Okay, Clinton Arnold in his book, Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare, he writes that a Christian will encounter Satan and demons the same way that a gardener will encounter snakes. It is inevitable. It's going to happen. I remember the first time that I had an encounter similar to this. I was a brand new Christian, me and Ashley and Brandon and Courtney. We had a little community group that would get together and we'd read our Bibles and we'd study and we'd pray. And one night, one day we decided, you know what, let's do something. Let's do something to love our city. Let's do something to serve our city. Let's do something to make a difference in the city. And so we decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get together, and we're going to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And we're going to pass out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to homeless people in downtown Beaumont. So that's a great idea. That's a good idea. And so here we are. We get together over at a friend's house, and we make like, you know, 60 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and we're having fun, and we go downtown, and we're passing them out. And as we're passing out the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, we're asking people, hey, you know, can we pray for you? Can we share our faith with you? Can we serve you in any way? Hey, here's a nice little peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And we're just passing them out. And then we're walking down. And then all of a sudden, we recognize that there is a woman across the street who begins to follow us. And as she's following us, she's saying, we don't want you here, right? You need to leave. You need to get out of here. We don't want your Jesus. We don't want your God. So I thought, maybe she wants a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so I walk across the street, and I go up to the lady, and I say, hey, you know, here, here's a nice little peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And as we walk up to the street, she begins growling at us and grinding her teeth at us. And she looks me dead in the eye, and she says, you need to leave. We don't want you here. I said, well, would you like a sandwich? And then she grabs the sandwich. And kid you not, she holds it up in her face. She squeezes it. And all the peanut butter and jelly go running down her arm. And then she throws it on the ground. She stomps on it. And she says, this is what I think about your God. And then she turns around and runs in the opposite direction. 
And I was like, that's interesting. That's, 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 that just happened. Okay. See, up until that point, I had never experienced anything like this. I thought maybe this woman is an alcoholic, or maybe, you know, she's on drugs, or maybe she has mental health issues. Maybe she needs medication. Maybe she needs a diagnosis, but really she needed deliverance. See, for me, I grew up in a very charismatic church, right? I've been taught about spiritual warfare and Satan and demons and hell. I heard all of that. But then whenever I became a Christian at the age of 20, I, I began to read and study. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't really believe in this stuff. That I thought it was outdated. I thought it was things that people told me to scare me in my childhood. And I, I didn't really believe in any of this. I'd seen the movies. I had read the books. Right? I'd seen it on television. Okay? But I'd never encountered anything like this. I'd never experienced anything like this. And on that day, I didn't really know what to do. And that's the same place that the disciples are at. Because as soon as they get off the boat... All of a sudden, there's a madman. There's a crazy man. There's a deranged man. He is insane. He is demonized. He is possessed. And he meets him as soon as he gets off the boat. And it tells us a little bit more about him, that he lived among the tombs. This man was more comfortable around the dead than he was the living. That he made his home among the tombs. In that day, um, graveyards were seen as demonic territory. It was a place of demonic occupation. That anything to touch something dead means that you became unclean. That you were not allowed to be in the presence of God. You were not allowed to be around other people who worship. That you weren't allowed to read the Bible. You weren't allowed to experience anything religious in that day. And so this man, he made his home among the tombs. That he has become so defiled, so deformed so unclean that he actually lived in a graveyard. Okay, what does this even look like? I mean, what, is this, what does this even mean? I mean, did, did he like dig up dead bodies? Did he sleep in a casket? I mean, is this something out of American Horror Story? Is this something from Friday the 13th? It's like a Rob Zombie film. I mean, this is really frightening and terrifying if you think about it. And in Luke's gospel, it tells us that he was always naked. Right? And commentators will say that the use of the word unclean spirit and the nakedness of this man, that it means that there are sexual overtones in the demonic in his life. Right? See, the Bible it doesn't tell us how he ended up like this, but what we can assume is that through habitual, unrepentant sexual sin, through illicit acts of behavior, this man, he became obsessed with death, he became obsessed with sex, nakedness, perversion, illicit behavior, that he was consumed, controlled, and eventually he got to the place to where he was overtaken by the demonic. It says that he lived among the graveyards and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. That he had superhuman strength. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. He wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. This is possible as well. Carl Payne in his book, Spiritual Warfare, he writes about a story of his first encounter with the demonic. See, Carl Payne, he was a Presbyterian preacher. He was a cessationist. So that means he, he didn't believe in the gifts. He didn't believe in the supernatural, any of those things. And he had no paradigm for that. And so he went into a counseling session with a young girl in her early 20s. She's small. She's petite. And as she, he goes to pray for her, he reads 1 John 4 over her. And then all of a sudden, she begins to demonically manifest. And this young girl, she began to push Carl Payne against the wall. And it took six of his staff and deacons just to be able to hold this woman down as they wrestled with him for hours. Okay, this is, this is possible. 
And when we read about this, a man who lives in the graveyards with superhuman strength, who is terrorizing, terrifying everybody, it's easy for us to become fearful. It's easy for us to read this story and look at this man and become fearful and afraid, and even for us to be scared. But when I read this, I'm not scared of this man, but instead, I think that we should have compassion on him. Because when you read this, you see that people tried to help him. That this didn't happen overnight for this man. That he didn't just wake up one morning possessed. He didn't just happen one day to get out of the bed and then be filled with 6,000 demons. This was a gradual process, a slow process that happened in this man's life over time to where he opened himself up so much so that he became consumed by darkness. That people, they had tried to help him. They tried to shackle him. They tried to chain him. That means that at one point in this man's life, people actually cared about him that he had a mother, he had a father, that he had parents who loved him. Maybe he had brothers and sisters. Maybe he had friends. Maybe he had um, a good job and he lost his job. Maybe he had people who, who did care about him and did want to help him. He might have even had a wife. Maybe he had kids. We don't know. But somebody tried to help him at one point, but eventually he got, they got to the place where they didn't know what to do with him. And the only thing they knew what to do was to lock him up. Undoubtedly, people probably tried to give him principles, maybe for his mind. You know, here's some coping mechanisms. You know, here's some things for you to think about, right? Here's some things that you need to journal, right? Here's some things, 10 simple steps for you to live a better life. They tried to give him principles to his mind, philosophy, ideology, self-help. They probably tried to treat his body. So they go in and give him some medication, help him get some rest, diet, exercise, sleep, give him some good things like that. They try to treat his mind, they try to treat his body, but nobody knew what to do with this man's soul. That his soul was being tormented and tortured and nobody knew what to do and so eventually they just locked him up. And you know what? That's the same thing that we do in our day. That we don't know what to do with the demonic, we don't know how to deal with the demonic, we don't know how to respond to Satan and demons and darkness when people's souls are being tortured and tormented. We don't really know what to do, and so we try to give everything a diagnosis. So we believe in science and reason and rationale, and we want to explain everything away, and so we give principles to people's minds. Okay, so we hear, here's some self-help books, here's, here's some good teachings, here's a nice little podcast, right? Go on vacation, take some deep breathing, do some meditation. We give principles to people's minds, and then we try to treat people's bodies. So we diet, exercise, go to the doctor, take some albuterol and some Welbutrin and some Xanax and some Proloft, take all of those things as well. And we try to treat the mind and we try to treat the body, but the truth is, is that we don't really know what to do with a person's soul that this man's soul was being tortured. And the problem for him wasn't that he needed a doctor. The problem was that he needed deliverance. The problem was not that he needed a better diagnosis. The problem is that that he needed deliverance. And so I'm going to say this, and I might have some of y'all balk at me, but I do think it's important, and, and I want to say this, that not all signs of mental illness are actually mental illness. Mental illness is very real. Mental illness is a problem. It's a pandemic in our nation and society, but not all forms of mental illness are actually mental illness. Sometimes there's something more nefarious happening behind the scenes. That sometimes people aren't just crazy. Sometimes it's something that's driving them crazy. 
Sometimes it's not just anxiety. Sometimes it's spiritual attack. Sometimes it's not just depression. Sometimes it's spiritual oppression. Sometimes it's not just a chemical imbalance. Sometimes it's a spiritual influence at work in a person's life. And it's not that you always need a better doctor. Sometimes you just need deliverance. It's not that you always need another diagnosis. Sometimes you just need deliverance. Now, am I saying that mental illness is demonic? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, so don't hear me say that. Don't quote me on that, because I didn't say that. Right? If you go to a doctor, please go to the doctor. If you take medicine, please take your medicine. If you go see a counselor or a therapist, please go see your counselor or therapist. If you need a recommendation for one, I will recommend you one. I went to counseling for years, took medicine for years. Right? I've been through all of that. And here's what I'm saying is that if it's not getting better and if it continually gets increasingly worse and worse and nothing ever works, the problem might not be your diagnosis. Okay, the problem actually means that you might need deliverance because that's what we see in this man's life. And so he is bound and shackled in chains that nobody could help him. Nobody could subdue him. It says, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and he was cutting himself with stones. Mark here gives us three more inferences of demonic activity in this person's life. That he's restless, that he displays animalistic-like behavior, and lastly, self-injury and self-harm. It says, night and day, he is crying out among the tombs and he is cutting himself with stones. Night and day, that means he doesn't get any sleep that there is no respite from the torment and torture that he experiences, that there's not a moment of lucidity in this man's life, that he is, he is being driven night and day by the demonic. And doctors tell you that if you go 72 hours without sleep, you become clinically insane, that you go into a psychosis, you begin to hallucinate, that your brain begins to shut down, your vital organs begin to shut down, you start hearing voices, and you can begin to harm yourself and to harm others. Night and day, he is crying out, and he is cutting himself with stones. The Greek word there for crying out is to screech. It's an animalistic like scream. It's yelling, hollering, becoming like an animal. So he's at the top of his lungs, just growling and screeching and crying out that his sense of personality has been so lost that he has begun to devolve into an animal. I've also seen this happen. That in times of prayer, we'd be praying for a person and they begin to yell and scream, fall on the floor and slither like a snake. That they begin to devolve, they lose all sense of personality and demonstrate animal-like behavior. And then lastly, self-harm. I believe that Satan wanted this man dead. That he wanted to kill him, he wanted to destroy him, he wanted this man dead. And that's the reason that he would cry out night and day and cut himself with stones. Okay, self-harm, is a big problem. Self-injury is still a very big problem. There are many people in our country, in our city, and even in our church who are crying out night and day and they are cutting themselves. That they cut themselves with razors or glass or rocks or burn themselves. I know one person who would actually break his own bones because the pain inside was so great they didn't know how to express it. And the only way to express the pain they feel inside was to let that pain out, to cut themselves just to know that they are alive. Maybe it's a cry for help. Maybe it's a seek, to seek attention. But maybe it's something more. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's that Satan wants you dead. To the place to where suicide begins to look seductive and it looks like it's the only option and the only way out. Satan wanted this man dead. And so I, I tell you all this because I want you to see him. 
I want you to imagine him. I want you to, I want you to think, what would you do if you're standing right in front of him? I mean, when you think about it, he's, he's covered in scars, that he's been cutting himself for years, that he's got open wounds, he's bleeding in front of you, infected, pussed, sword, that his hair is falling out, his beard is falling out, his teeth are rotten and probably falling out, that he is naked and he's deranged, he's a demonized, possessed madman, and he is standing right there in front of you, yelling at the top of his lungs, behaving like an animal, hallucinations, psychosis, voices and he's right in front of you. I want you to see him. I want you to imagine him. Because when you see him, you're gonna see just how much Jesus changes him. Because this man meets Jesus, and Jesus changes him. The story, it continues. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with this Jesus, son of the most high God? So this man sees Jesus and he thinks, there we go. There's another person that I can torment. There's another person that I could torture. There's another person that possibly I could attack and kill. And he sees Jesus getting off the boat. And then all of a sudden the demons recognize this is not just any ordinary man. This is not just any man. There's something different about this man. And the demons inside him begin to manifest. They run towards Jesus. They lie on the floor, prostrate in front of him, bow down, and they say, Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. See, this goes to show that demons have excellent theology. They have very sound orthodox doctrine. The demons know who Jesus is. And one of the things that I find very curious when you read through Mark's gospel is nobody has any clue who Jesus is. Nobody even knows. They're like, who is this man? What gives him the right? What gives him the ability? He shows up and teaches, and people are like, who is this guy? Right? He rolls into somebody's town. They're like, who is this man? He rebukes the sea, peace be still, and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Nobody has any clue who Jesus is is except for the demons. The demons say Jesus is God. And some people would say, the Bible never says Jesus is God. You know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Nobody ever claims that Jesus is God. That's not true. Here, the demons claim Jesus is God. They say he is the son of God, the most high God, that he is the greatest God, that he is the king above kings, he is the Lord above lords, that he is the son of God. That word son, it means source or substance, that he is made up of the same stuff. He has the same rule, the same reign. He has the same sovereign power and authority as God himself, that Jesus Jesus is God in the flesh, entered into this world, very God of very God. Jesus is the son of God, and the demons come, and they bow down before him, but they are not worshiping him, that they are not worshiping him. See, they don't say, Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you so much for showing up. We've been waiting for you. We want to serve you. We want to give our lives to you. That's not what the demons are saying. The demons recognize that Jesus is God and they still refuse to worship him. That just goes to show that you can have excellent theology and still be on par with a demon. That you can have orthodox doctrine and you can know who Jesus is. You can pass the Bible test. You can go to Bible college. You can do Bible trivia bowl and you can even quote Bible verses on your Facebook and still have enough faith to be qualified as a demon. There is no forgiveness available to them. There is no redemption available to the demons. 
And they cry out, what have you to do with this Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For years, the demons had tormented this man, but in the presence of Jesus, the demons, they're tormented. That the demons had authority over this man, but Jesus here, he has authority over the demons. And they say, do not torment us. Why would they say that? Because demons know that they are going to hell. That there is a time and there is a place of judgment reserved for Satan and demons in darkness. That they are destined and bound to be bondaged, to be chained, to be shackled in a place of conscious torment in the presence of God. What the demons did to this man, God will do to the demons. And in the presence of God in hell, they will suffer for all of eternity. And some people will say that hell is the absence of God's presence. That's not true. Hell is the fullness of God's presence without possibility of redemption. And Jesus torments the demons in his presence. And the demons and Satan, they understand that this is where we're going, but the time has not yet come, and that they want to take as many people down with them. And listen, there's an opportunity still available for you. That the opportunity and the invitation is still available to you. That Jesus, he sees us. And he enters into this world. He lives the perfect life, the life we could never live. He sees your sin. He sees your shame. He sees your guilt. He sees your bondage and your hopelessness. And he goes to the cross in your place, taking upon himself the due penalty and punishment for your sin. He goes to the grave. He resurrects so that you could have hope, that you could have grace, that you could have life, that you could have mercy, that you could have a reconciled relationship to the Father, that you could be with him forever. Jesus comes and he makes that invitation available for you. But that invitation is not available for Satan and demons because they are destined, they are bound, and they are going to hell. Hell is very real. It's not something that we made up to scare your kids. It's not something that we made up for crowd control. It's not something that we made up by manipulative, bigoted preachers just to be able to scare you so you can give more tithes offerings. That's not what hell is. Hell is very real. Jesus preached on hell more than anyone else in the entire Bible because he loves you and he does not want you to go there. Satan, that's where he wants you to go that he wants to take you down because he is a defeated enemy and in his time walking on this earth, he wants to take as many people as possible with him. That includes you and that includes this man. So they say, I adjure you by God, do not torment us. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. That word Legion is a military term for upwards of 6,000 soldiers. So what Rome would do is they would send an army, a legion of 6,000 soldiers into a region, into a country, into a city, and they would totally lay siege to it. They would go in, they would, they, they would dominate it, they, they would kill everyone in there, they would rape, they would pillage, they would take the women, they would take the children, make them slaves, kill all of the men, set it on fire, burn it down to the ground, and then they would conquer it and claim it as their own. That's the same exact thing that these demons did in the life of this man. They were legion, for they were many, and they conquered him, and they destroyed him. And you think, is it possible for a person to be possessed by 6,000 demons? Well, according to the Bible, it is. That through habitual, unrepentant sin, giving yourself over to illicit behavior, rebellion, foolishness, folly against God, hard hearts, stubbornness, pride, that, yeah, you could possibly give yourself over to 6,000 demons. 
Now, as Christians, you don't have to worry about being possessed. Okay, because as a Christian, you are possessed by Jesus. Romans chapter 1 says that you were called to belong to Jesus. You don't belong to Satan, that the precious blood of Jesus paid the price for your sins, and now you belong to him. You are his possession. As Christians, we don't have to worry about being possessed, but through unrepentant sin, pride, hard-heartedness, foolishness, rebellion against God, you give Satan enemy, and the enemy rights and access into your life to be able to dominate you and to be able to manipulate you. And so I don't want you to hear this and think, oh, I'm a Christian, I don't have to worry about spiritual warfare. No, you do. I want you to be alert. I want you to be on guard. I want you to be ready. I want you to be prepared. And so the story, it continues, that he is possessed by legions. And here we see that the legions, the demons, they actually have the ability to speak through this man that he has been held hostage and captive so long that his own personality has moved to the back. The demons now have moved to the front. They have control over him and they're able to speak from him. And they say, do not send us out of the man. Instead, send us out of the country. And you wonder, that's weird. Why would they say, don't send us out of the country? Okay, because demons are territorial. That there are certain places that they have rights and access. They're encouraged and they're allowed to work. Here in the country of the Gerasenes, it's a pagan place. They, they're pagans. That that's means they war, worship false gods. They worship the gods of Rome or the gods of Greece or other pagan gods and animalistic gods. And that's probably one of the reasons why he demonstrates this animalistic behavior. They also have the pigs. And so we see that this is a foreign place. This is a pagan people. They don't go to church. They don't pray. They don't have the God of the Bible. They're, they're not growing in their faith. They're worshiping false gods. And because of their worship of false gods, they have allowed the demonic access into their country. And the demons know in the presence of Jesus, we have have to give up this man, but we don't want to give up our country because they want us there. They actually worship us there, that they've been allowed there. And so one thing that we need to recognize because of this is that any other religion outside of Christianity ultimately is demonic. And you're saying, really, Byron, seriously, are you, are you, are you going to go there? Are you going to, you going to say that? Yes. That outside of Christianity, all false gods, all false religions, all false ideologies, all false doctrines, all false teachings really come from Satan himself. And because of their worship and pagan practices and false gods and their false religion, they've actually given their territory over to Satan and demons. So they know I have to give up this man, but I don't want to give up this country. I want to be allowed to continue to work and operate in this region to deceive and to blind and to destroy and ultimately lead to death many people. So they come up with another idea. The demons, they got a plan. So they say, we have to leave this man, but we don't want to leave the country. And so they come up with a good idea. Here's what it says. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside and they begged saying to him, send us into the pigs. Let us enter into the pigs. Those poor pigs. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered into the pigs, and a great herd numbering about 2,000, that's three demons per pig, 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and drowned in the sea. The demons say, Jesus, do not torment us. Instead, send us into the pigs. And some of you are thinking, okay, seriously, man possessed 6,000 demons, that's crazy. 
the story just got a little bit crazier because now the pigs are possessed by the demons and then they jump off the side of the cliff and then they do a nice little swine dive into the sea and all the demons are gone along with the pigs. And you think, really, seriously, this story is crazy. And anytime we talk about spiritual warfare, Satan and demons and darkness, right? People always bring this up. They say, okay, Byron, tell me about the pigs. Let's talk about the pigs. Why would Jesus send the demons into the pigs, okay? So let me take a little moment and let me explain this, okay? First is this. Um, This was not Jesus' idea. So all my vegan friends, okay, all my vegan friends, this was not Jesus' idea. Jesus didn't kill the pigs, the demons did. So just another reason for you to get mad at Satan, okay, because he killed your pigs, it wasn't Jesus. Okay, the second thing is this, is that pigs were unclean animals, Okay, in the Old Testament, pigs were unclean, that you, you weren't allowed to raise them, to eat them, to, to farm them, or to make any money off of them. They were seen as unclean. And so this city, they found a way to profit off of sin. And, and so Jesus, in the story, not only does he demonstrate his power to defeat Satan, but he also has the power to destroy sin, that they become rich and lucrative. They built their city on sin and taking advantage of other people and rebellion against God. And so when Jesus cast the demons into the pigs, I believe that he is also demonstrating his power to destroy and defeat sin as well. This would be the equivalent of if Jesus goes into a crack house, sets all the prostitutes and all the drug addicts free, they get involved in Celebrate Recovery, He goes back, flushes the stash, and sets the place on fire so that nobody could ever go back and make money again. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing here to these pigs. So number one, not his idea. Number two, demonstrates his power of sin. But three, I believe that this is definitive proof that what Jesus said actually happened. People see the pigs jumping into the sea, and they're like, what just happened? Oh yeah, Jesus just happened. This is definitive proof that this man has been set free. See, Satan wants this man dead. All Satan knows how to do is kill. Jesus says in John 8 that he was a a murderer from the very beginning. In John 10, that he comes to lie still, kill, cheat, and to destroy. All Satan knows how to do is destroy and kill. He wants to kill your life. He wants to kill your marriage. He wants to kill your relationships. He wants to kill your finances. He wants to kill this church. All he knows how to do is to kill. And the demons, they had one job, take this man out, kill this man. And it might very well be that this man was made in the image and likeness of God. That was the only dignity that was holding his life together. And as soon as Jesus shows up, cast the demons out, they did the only thing they knew how to do, which was to kill. And the demons did not have the image of God. They could not bear the demonic oppression on their life, and they jumped down to their death. This is definitive proof that what Jesus did just happened. He set this man free. This is a crazy story. What would you do if you were there? If you see this take place, would you be like, oh my God, like this is crazy. How would you respond? Well, luckily, Mark tells us because apparently somebody was there watching. Here's what happens next. The herdsmen, so just think about it. Like This is like a, a guy working a part-time job, right? Maybe he makes $9 an hour. He's just watching pigs. That's his job, right? Just watch the pigs, make sure nothing happens. That's his job. Then Jesus shows up. <laughs> And the great herdsman fled, and he told it to the city and to the country. So apparently, there's this guy there watching all this take place. He's like, I got to go tell my boss. All of his pigs are dead. Could you imagine having that job? You're like, "Uh, hey, boss, 
Um, so how was work today? Well, about that. <laughs> Crazy story, boss. Uh, all your pigs are dead. What? Seriously? Really? Yeah. Well, what happened? You remember that crazy storm last night? Yeah, that was wild. Then a guy got out of the boat, and then, like, all the pigs are dead. You're like, oh, what? Oh, the demon guy, man, down at the tombs. Yeah, he cast all the demons out. They went into the pigs, and all the pigs just ran right off the cliff, and now they're all dead. Like, try to sell that to your boss. All right, I'm trying to have a hard enough time selling this to you guys listening to it now. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to be this guy? You have to go tell your boss that Jesus cast 6,000 demons, three per pig, and they jumped off the side of the cliff, and now they're all dead? Yeah, good luck with that. Okay, so what happens next? So here's what we see, okay? And so the people came to see what it was that had happened. They're like, we got to see this. So Jesus is trending. He's viral. He's on the six o'clock news, like demon-possessed man gets set free, 6,000 pigs dead. You're like, okay, let's go figure this out. So everybody gets off of work. All the kids get out of school. Everybody runs down. They want to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were uh, afraid. Okay, and so where's the demon-possessed man? What's going on here? Where, where, what happened? Everybody comes down. Where's the demon-possessed man? They're like, oh, there he is. You mean the guy who's clothed in his right mind? Yep, that's him. That can't be him. Nope, that's totally him. That's him. It doesn't look like him at all. I mean, it looks like he's in Bible college. He's sitting down. He's well-dressed, got his dockers on. He's got a pen and paper. He's taking notes. He's journaling out his prayers. He's listening to Jesus' sermon. That definitely doesn't look like the demon-possessed man. What happened? This man met Jesus, and Jesus changed his life. I mean, just think about this. It says that he is clothed in his right mind. I got to think, okay, did Jesus not only deliver this man, but did he also heal this man? I mean, as he's wearing clothes, are the cuts and sores gone? Did Jesus give him a haircut? Did Jesus give him a, a bath? Did Jesus shave his beard? Did Jesus give him brand new clothes? I mean, this man, he has been totally restored, renewed from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, not only on the inside, but also in the outside, that in this moment, Jesus not only delivers this man, but Jesus also gave him back his dignity. Jesus restored this man. And what took Satan years to do, Jesus, in just a minute, he did it in a moment. That what the doctors tried to do, Jesus did it in a moment. What his family tried to do, Jesus did it in a moment. What his friends tried to do, Jesus did it in a moment. What the psychologists and the counselors with the medication, what everyone tried to do, but nobody could hold him or bind him or set him free. The moment he met Jesus, Jesus shows up, set this man free. Because that's what happens when you meet Jesus. It is impossible for you to meet Jesus and stay the same. When you meet Jesus, he changes you. Flat out changes you. You're different. You're never the same again. He changes who you are, how you live, how you think, how you work, how you love. Jesus changes everything about a person. He changes you inside. He changes you outside. He changes your mind. He changes your nature. He changes your destiny. He changes your direction. He changes your purpose. He changes your passion. He changes your eternity. Life change happens through Jesus. It's impossible for you to meet Jesus and stay the same. This is some of your lives, that you walked into our church and you were a total wreck, that you were a mess. Some people, they dropped you off here because you were so bad, and they brought you to church, and then you met Jesus, and he changed everything. 
that you met Jesus and your life is different. I mean, we have people who are alcoholics. They meet Jesus, they get sober. People who are drug addicts meet Jesus, they get clean. We have people who are total jerks. And the moment they meet Jesus, they're actually fun to be around. We have people who come from the occult and now they're leading Bible studies. I mean, we see Jesus do this on the regular because that's just what he does. And Jesus can do it in your life. This goes to show that no matter who you are, where you come from, how far you have run, what you have gone through, what other people have said about you, it is no match for the saving grace and power that Jesus has, that Jesus will love you, that Jesus will save you, that Jesus will forgive you, that Jesus will redeem you, Jesus will renew you, Jesus will restore you, Jesus can do that. And if he can do it for this man possessed by 6,000 demons, crying out, cutting himself with stones, chained to a graveyard, if he can do it for this man, then you're a piece of cake. Because that's who Jesus is. Everything changes when you meet Jesus. So how do the people in the city respond? They were afraid. They were afraid, and those who had seen it described to them what happened, the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They're still thinking about the pigs. And then he began, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. You would think these people would be happy, right? Jesus showed up, the demon-possessed man. He's healed, he's delivered, he's set free, yay! No, but they're still thinking about their pigs because these people love their pigs more than this man. These people, they love to profit off of sin more than to see a person's suffering come to an end. They didn't care what happened to this man. They didn't care what Jesus did. They just realized that they can't make money off of sin anymore. And they were angry and they were upset and they were afraid. They say, we don't want Jesus here. That Jesus shows up, he ruins everything. Jesus comes in, he ruins everything. We don't have this type of power. We don't know what's going on. We're afraid. We don't want this man here anymore. And so the city, they kick Jesus out. I think this is very interesting, that they kick Jesus out of the city. Jesus comes, he casts out the demons, and then the city casts out Jesus. Okay, but this is still true in our day as well, that Jesus is gonna do something in your life, and other people, they're not gonna be happy about it. That culture in 2,000 years hasn't changed very much. There's some places that you're going to go. People don't want to hear it. People don't want to know it. People don't want to see it. People don't want to see what Jesus does in your life. And so the city, they reject Jesus. He casts out the demons, and then the city kicks Jesus out. And so what does Jesus do? He obliges. They said, depart from our region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged that he might be with them. He says, Jesus, let me stay with you. Jesus, let me be with you. Jesus, let me follow you. Let me be one of your disciples. I'll be the 13th disciple. Right, I'll, I'll get in the boat with you. I'll come with you. I'll follow you. I'll grab an oar. I'll grab a cell. I'll get down in the stern. I'll lay on the cushion if that's what you want me to. Jesus, just let me follow you. I want to be with you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Wherever you're going, that's where I'm going to go. What do you want me to do? And Jesus tells him no. Jesus says, you can't come with me. You can't follow me. You can't go where I'm going. I have something more important for you. And he did not permit him, but he said, go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. He says, go home. If you were this man, would you really want to go home? Really? Because... 
that's where they know you. That's where they had shackled you up. That's where they had chained you. That's where they know your story. That's where they know what you did to open yourself up. That's where they know the darkest things about you. And Jesus says, I want you to go home. Do you think this man really wanted to go home? I mean, for him, it would have been so much easier if he got to follow Jesus because then he would be the 13th disciple. He would become an apostle. Then he could travel around and he could tell his testimony. There would be big crowds. There would be a stadium. There would be a tour. He would write a book. He would have DVD study group videos just for this man. This man, oh, are you going to go see this man? He's possessed by 6,000 demons. Jesus cast him out. All the pigs are dead. Now he's a disciple. We got to go see this man. He could have been famous off of his story. He could have gone and told his story and nobody would have known where he came from. And Jesus says, that's not what I want you to do. Instead, I want you to go home where everybody knows you. Home is hard. Home is hard because they know what you've gone through. They know who you've been. They know what you said. They know what you've done. And that's exactly where Jesus is sending you. He says, go home to your mom, to your dad to your brothers and sisters. Go get that old job. Go back to college. Go, go next door and tell everybody how I've shown mercy on you because your life is a living testimony of the mercy of God. Who better to live it out than those who watched it take place? Jesus sends this man home. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis just how much Jesus has done for him and everyone marvels. That word proclaim means to preach. That this crazy, deranged, possessed man becomes the very first preacher of the gospel. In the gospel of Mark, anytime someone meets Jesus, he always tells them, don't tell anyone. This is the first time Jesus ever told someone, go tell everyone. The possessed becomes the preacher. The madman becomes the very first missionary. And he goes home to his family. He goes home to his friends. He goes home and he tells everyone that Jesus has had mercy on me, that Jesus has changed me, that I'm not the same person. I've been made a new person. I've been made a new creation. Come and see what Jesus has done for me. And redemption, the truth is, if you've met Jesus, if you've experienced God's mercy, then God is calling you to be a missionary as well. That this story is really your story. That sin has bound you. That sin has shackled you. That your shame has gripped you. That Satan had his grips on you. That you were in his possession. And he was dragging you down through the deceptive work of demons and darkness into the point of hell. And then one day, Jesus got out of the boat right in front of you. And Jesus set you free. That Jesus shows up. And Jesus gives you a new life. And Jesus gives you hope. And Jesus gives you mercy. And if you've experienced the mercy that only comes from Jesus, then you know that only him can take your mess and make you into a missionary. That only Jesus has mercy to turn you into a missionary. And the truth is, if you've met Jesus, this is now your call. That you're to go home. Go home to your family. 
Go home to your brothers. Go home to your sisters. Go home to your kids. Go home to your mom. Go home to your dad. Go get that old job back. Go back to your old friends. Go back to those old places and begin to show and to tell everyone just how much Jesus has changed your life. If you have experienced his mercy, then you are to be a missionary because this city needs you. There are people in our city who are suffering and Jesus has given you a testimony. There are people in our city who are hurt and Jesus is sending you back home. There are people in our city who are bound and held hostage and held captive and what they really need is a missionary because your story is the living testimony of the mercy that Jesus has for you. This man, he never went to Bible college. This man, he never took an apologetics class. This man, he never went to a community group. This man never even heard a sermon before. He never even cracked open a Bible. And Jesus tells him to go. Some of you think, well, I don't have any answers and I have too many questions and I never took a class and I don't know Greek and it doesn't matter because you have the greatest apologetic your story. Your story is the greatest apologetic. And I believe by telling your story, we can see the city changed. Because at the end, he goes home and everyone marveled. Who is this? What has Jesus done? See, this story is not about Satan. The story is really about salvation. Satan is real, hell is real, demons are real, but this story is not about Satan. This story is about salvation. The story is not about demons. The story is really about deliverance. The story is not about hell. The story is really about healing. The story is not about legions. This story is really about life change. It's not about a madman. It's about experiencing God's mercy and living on mission. Satan is real. Hell is real, demons are real, but so is Jesus. And they are no match for the mercy that Jesus has for you. So you think, what happened to this man? This is an amazing story. It's a beautiful story, but what, what happened to this man? Well, if we jump just a little bit further in Mark's gospel, it tells us what happened next. Jesus is traveling and journeying and says, then he returned from the region of Tyre and through Sidon and he goes to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. That's where the garrisons are. And if you remember, they kicked him out of the city already. They said, we don't want you here. You need to leave. You need to go. So Jesus, he leaves, but then he comes back. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and with a speech impediment and they begged him to lay hands on him. Right, the first time they say, Jesus, you gotta leave. But in two chapters, something happens. In two chapters, something is different. In two chapters, the city has changed. How did this happen? Because one man went and told his story. The city, they marveled. And so when Jesus shows back up, they're running to him, they're meeting him, they're coming to him and they say, Jesus, heal this man. Jesus, pray for this man. The city changes in two chapters because one person had the boldness to step out and tell their story about what happened and the Decapolis has changed and they were astonished beyond measure. Could you imagine what it must have been to be this man on that day? That you're the madman who became a missionary and now you're clothed and in your right mind and then you're standing there and Jesus comes back 
And you're thinking, there he is. That's my Jesus. That's the man who changed me. That's the man who set me free. I told you he was coming. I told you that's Jesus. I told you he could do it. And then you're this man and a great crowd. And then all of a sudden you see your brother being prayed for by Jesus. And then you see your mom meeting Jesus. And then you see your kids meeting Jesus. And he's standing there and he's watching Jesus heal. He says, I told you he can do it. He did it for me. He could do it for you. I told you that he could do it. What would you do if you're this man? In Mark chapter 7, who had been set free, and now you watch your family get saved. You watch your friends get saved. You watch your city be changed. And you see a city renewed. How would this man respond? Was he weeping with joy? Was he laughing? Was he celebrating? As he watched his friends get saved. In two chapters, a city was changed because of this story. And I believe that your story could change the city as well. Because that's what Jesus does. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.